You're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and this week I'm talking with Sanjay Panchal, a partner at LivingBridge, a leading mid-market private equity firm. Sanjay focuses on healthcare, and in this discussion, he explains the dynamics and the opportunities in this complex sector from an investor's perspective. Sanjay, welcome to Funshack. You focus on healthcare at LivingBridge, new investments. Healthcare is kind of, it's a big sector mm. to get your arms around. How do yeah. you at LivingBridge a- approach it? Yeah, you're right. Healthcare is um, a really massive sector and uh, very varied, actually. You know, lots of different business models, lots of different end markets, um, lots of different subsectors to get your head around. So it can be quite a difficult market to navigate and try to think through. But the way we think about it at Living Bridge, and it's it's kind of, if I talk a little bit about how we approach private equity generally, and then parlay that into how we break that down into healthcare, it, it hopefully helps provide a bit of a framework. But um, that'd be great. We play in the we largely play in the mid market in the UK. And so we're investing in businesses, um, generally making a few million pounds of profit and above and helping them scale and grow. And if you think about it, if you think about the sort of broader UK economy, it's a low GDP growth economy. And our job as investors is to spot the areas of that economy which are growing faster than GDP and materially faster than GDP. Because we want to be finding businesses that um, are growing at 20, 30% a year. And so um, the, the, the beauty and the challenge in that is actually what you're constantly having to do is repoint where you're spending time because the markets are, markets are constantly changing and where that growth comes from as sort of sub-verticals and sectors go on their natural maturity curve means you have to constantly look for new different pockets of growth. And so the way we approach it at Living Bridge is really uh, thematic investing. So really identifying key trends and growth trends in the healthcare space and in a market and then understanding um, how we can bring to bear our capability and our experience uh, into uh, helping and supporting companies that are playing into that ecosystem. So we're constantly looking at where is change happening, where is innovation happening, and in healthcare, and particularly, it's very, very much also linked to where is funding going, and where is capital going, um, and that's both NHS funding, but also in the private sector. Where, where, where our healthcare dollars getting spent or pounds getting spent rather. And then we also think about it at, um, in the context of where can our experience as an investor and the things we've done in the past really allow us to win and play and make a difference. I guess underlying all that is a, is a philosophy we built in healthcare, which is um, really focusing in on businesses that dr- want to drive um, a change in outcomes. And we really believe in the fact that as a healthcare provider, if your sole purpose or your, your your reason to exist is to drive better healthcare outcomes, the commercial outcomes sort of follow from that. We want to partner and like to partner with businesses that share that same philosophy, um, who come from a real care ethos, and also businesses that, uh, as part of that, really focus on being the best employer in their market. Because um, as you'll see, you know, a lot of healthcare businesses are very much people-driven. 40% of NHS spend is on staff. Um, so people are the lifeblood of delivering healthcare. And the key to growing um, really sustainable healthcare businesses is actually being able to recruit and retain uh, individuals and empower and inspire them um, and also give them the tools they need to deliver great care. So it sounds like we're talking about service businesses, really, rather than because, you know, you could include like biotech and stuff into healthcare. Yeah, in the main, we um, as, a, as a house, we are largely focused on service businesses. Um, that includes technology as well. Um, but if you look at the wider healthcare ecosystem, you've got very capital intensive businesses, things like hospitals. But those are in the main, um, 
uh, and, and you think about elderly care homes, uh, but those are in the main um, a profile of investment that's more suited to either large corporates that play in that space or real estate investors. So we're looking, we are typically playing into to service business models, yeah. Right. So you spoke about themes, but you also spoke about change. Mm. I thought you were going to say, oh, well, we look at uh, themes like aging population, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a theme that doesn't really change that quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are looking at, we, we do look at really large themes like that. So we start, actually, that's where we start from. So we say, actually, what are the big 10, we call them 10-year truths um, in a market. So what is the direction of travel in an overall market? And then as a result of that, which are the business models that will play into that change? So a really good example is um, a business that we invested in in 2018 called Helping Hands. And Helping Hands delivers care in the home. And we recognized um, as part of our 10-year truth that actually, uh, one, you've got an aging population, but two, a lot of care was moving to be out of the home, out, out of the, uh, sorry, out of hospital and into the community. And there's a strong imperative to uh, move, move uh, care closer to the home. If you look at the number of hospital beds in the UK, uh, they've gone from about 200,000 beds in the early 2000s to about 140,000 now. So the, the acute capacity, and that's partly driven by the fact that there's more day procedures, so you're able to do uh, procedures more efficiently, and therefore you might need less capacity, but also a strong imperative to move uh, care closer to the community. So we spotted that as a trend, as a 10-year truth, and we... Um, uh, we spent a lot of time building relationships with businesses over a long period of time. So we spent 10 years, I think it was, getting to know a helping hands before we even did a transaction with them. And some of the other big 10-year truths are technology adoption in healthcare, looking at the care in the community. Um, in life sciences, there's a huge change in the way drug pipelines um, uh, towards more complex molecules and more complex indications. Um, and that's driving a lot of different activity and a lot of pockets of growth in the life science ecosystem. And so, yeah, we do try and identify these very long-term trends and then see what business models can play into them. They sound very, very different types of businesses. Mm. And, you know, while private equity firms are great at service businesses, you know, playing into the, um, you know, the complex molecule. Yeah. I mean, this is a specialist yeah, yeah, endeavor, yeah. even for the people that are investing in the companies that are doing it. So our job, another way to think about it is our job is pattern recognition. Um, what we're trying to do in a lot of these instances is identify the common themes in the business models that exist and how we can play into them. Now let's use Helping Hands as an example. Um, Helping Hands is a business that a core part of what it does is recruiting and retaining um, um, clinicians and nurses. And actually that capability and that, that skill set is very common to a lot of different business models and a lot of different businesses. So even in even when you've got very specific end market dynamics, there's common themes in those businesses that we as a private equity house can bring to bear. And that's kind of the value we bring as an organization, which is to actually say, we've seen this 10 times before in a bunch of different scenarios. And, and actually our ability to, and our, our focus on multiple sectors really does make a big difference in understanding that pattern recognition because mm. you get to actually see it across a load of different sectors. I guess in that example, your healthcare specialization allowed you to see the opportunity. Yeah. And when you bought the business, the value creation drivers yeah. and levers were actually relatively known to you because- Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and we see that uh, as a very common, um, that's a very common theme for us. Uh, we see uh, our job is to identify those patterns and then understand how we can leverage our experience our capability to help the companies we work with, you know, and often bypass the mistakes we've made and, and mm. miss them, but also bring capability to help them scale. Mm. If you're thinking as a founder of a business, you know, most of the founders we work with, they're really passionate about the markets they work in. They have a really clear vision about what they want to build. 
um, and they know what great service and product looks like for their customer base. That's very different to understanding the ingredients of how to scale a business. Mm. How do I go and what does the best CFO look like? How do I think about making an acquisition in the US because I've never done that before? And that's where that combination of their vision, mm. their understanding of their market combined with our capability of how to scale and how to execute, all the while having the same empathy in healthcare in particular, mm. um, that's a really powerful combination. And so our philosophy is all about, um, is this business in a better place than we left it? Um, have we genuinely brought value to the table to that founder and helped them realize their vision? A really good example is a business I sit on the board of called Nourish Care, which is um, helping uh, elderly care homes in the wider healthcare ecosystem trans transition from paper records into digital records. Um, and Nuno, the founder there, um, incredibly passionate about Ura, is really aligned um, on philosophy in terms of driving better care outcomes as the ethos of the business. We think of it as a care business first before a technology business. But actually, Nuno has no idea. He didn't have any idea how to make an acquisition or wasn't thinking, you know, hadn't, hadn't done one before. Mm. Um, you know, we've helped build a C-suite around that business to make sure it's got the right talent around it um, to help it scale and really maximize the opportunity that business has. Yeah, it's so interesting how you come at things because you could have come at a deal like that as a technology investor yeah. and applied a cookie cutting approach to that and maybe it wouldn't have made much difference but maybe you wouldn't have won a deal in the first place yeah no exactly and it, it's that combination of we've got a lot of healthcare experience and a lot of software experience mm. so we're able to bring that empathy and that ethos that care ethos and that quality mm. ethos from a healthcare perspective but then we also understand what are the ingredients to scaling a mm. software mm. business model that's a really powerful combination um, and, yeah. and um, something that we think really differentiates us. And the, the level you're investing, you're dealing, as you mentioned, with with founders and entrepreneurs. Yeah. Are they, are, is there a type, do they tend to have medical and care backgrounds? Presumably they do, but maybe not. Funny enough, increasingly, we're seeing people from non-care backgrounds come into care. Partly there's an opportunity and then also partly there's a need for innovation. Mm. And so you see a lot of people looking at parts of the healthcare ecosystem saying, something's broken, I, I can find a solution and fix it. Particularly in technology, where you get a lot of engineering and a lot of technical understanding and just applying it to a different use case, really. Mm. The other thing about the like the medical profession in general is that it's full of really smart people. Mm. They're very specialist. Um, and it, it's a, I guess it's a shame that there isn't a culture of being able to dip in and out of being a heart surgeon and an entrepreneur. I guess that's just not what the system caters for. But you can imagine that a heart surgeon has lots of fantastic ideas about how yeah. to make the system better, you know? Yeah, it's partly what I love about being in the sector, actually. You're generally working with um, very bright, very thoughtful uh, individuals who um, you can just have a very uh, rational and, and uh, really fulfilling conversation with um, mm. about what they want to build and how they want to go about building it. Um, so I think, and particularly in, in healthcare and particularly in life sciences as well, you just find really, really smart individuals mm. um, and it's a pleasure to work with them. I felt that you were a little bit um, modest in your description of Living Bridge at the start because mm. it's a wildly successful growth mm. capital and mid-market house. And um, yes, you're in the UK, but you also have in a real international presence. Yes. How does that feed into this sector? We've got offices in uh, the US in Boston and an office in Australia. And interestingly, in Australia, we've done two healthcare investments, actually three. Uh, so we've done a, uh, invested in a business that does uh, physiotherapy clinics, we've got a GP clinics business, and we've also got a radiology, teleradiology business. Um, and actually, 
it's a really interesting theme we're, we're sort of thinking about uh, actively is as healthcare becomes more specialized, the ability to apply disciplines across uh, geographies becomes more relevant. If you think about it historically, um, healthcare systems have been quite independent, particularly where you've got state-funded provision. Um, and therefore, the funding models and the nuances of navigating those systems, and, and, and to a large extent, still the case. But where, particularly in the acute sector, and by that I mean um, hospital and secondary care, uh, the, the specific specialties are becoming much more um, multi-jurisdictional. So, for example, gastroenterology or dermatology. These are very specialist disciplines that you can actually scale across different geographies. Um, as long as you're able to navigate the funding system and the, uh, the, the, the nuances of that. Can you give me an example of, like, say, gastroenterology? What, what, what element of it is scalable? Yeah, so what, happened, what you could have is, for example, in the US, you see this a lot now, you have specialist gastroenterology clinics. So whereas before what you'd have was hospitals doing everything, you get a, a reconfiguration oh. of the footprint where you get specialty businesses really focused on specific disciplines and the care pathway becomes much more specialised. And how are they tend to be funded? Are they still funded through the, the state system or does it just depend? Yeah, so you can, it depends on the, the individual um, jurisdiction. So what you could have is right. um, it, similar to what we have in the UK where it's a lot of it's publicly funded but privately delivered yeah. or you have private pay or a mix of both. Um, and that's becoming a more common theme that we're seeing as well. Do you see many healthcare um, opportunities where it's kind of a consumer-driven trend and choice? Um, we're seeing the increasing consumerization of healthcare. Um, and I think the way I'd characterize it is um, consumers wanting greater visibility and control over their health. Yeah. Um, to, to be honest, though, that hasn't really necessarily parlayed its way into uh, the private sector from an independent self-pay perspective growing is, we still think there's lots of opportunity there, but it probably hasn't um, fulfilled its potential yet. Yeah. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. The other interesting thing is that um, the expectations of consumers has really changed in terms of the service they expect from a counterparty more generally. Mm. So, and then that's really driven by um, how thing, you know, how most industries have moved online in some fashion. And therefore the definition of customer experience mm. is really changing. And the healthcare landscape has really lagged in its ability to uh, keep up with yeah. the expectation of the consumer on customer experience. Um, so NHS satis patient satisfaction, I think around 14%. Mm. Um, and this is where we see a big role in technology playing and actually delivering a better customer experience, if you want to call it that, into what can be a state-funded environment. Let's talk about deal-making for a minute. Mm. Um, generally speaking, rather than like maybe right now, what kind of competition, uh, what level of competition do you have? What types of competitors do you have for assets? And then at the other end, where do you look to typically exit? The UK mid-market's quite um, an established ecosystem. Uh, so we will be competing, as you'd expect, with other mid-market funds. Um, we've probably got one of the longest-running franchises in healthcare specifically and built a very strong track record in healthcare. Increasingly, you're seeing US competitors come to the UK, uh, particularly in the life sciences arena. And right now, what's the, are you seeing decent deal flow? I know so, it's a difficult, generally it's a difficult market. No, it's it's a much, this year is a much quieter market. Mm. So I would say deal flow, and in healthcare in particular, is probably down 30%, 40% right. uh, year on year. That's partly, you know, during COVID, there was a flight to resilience and there was a lot of um, interest in healthcare, particularly as people mm. saw it as, you know, very resilient, very stable. But the general markets, particularly as interest rates have um, increased meant that equity 
uh, private equity activities just come down generally across the board. The other aspect you've had is in the biotech world, um, funding for biotechs has uh, taken a material hit. Yeah. So that's probably down 30% year on year. Um, and that's just because capital reallocation of capital from institutional capital and funds into uh, into high yield instruments. Mm. Yeah, and, and how how big roughly is your current portfolio of healthcare investment? So we've got um, I think it's ten healthcare assets at the moment yeah. um, across a number of different uh, themes that we've been tracking for a long time. So we've always been very strong in social care, um, and really focused on the high acuity end of social care where you can make a real difference to care outcomes as a, as, as a provider. Uh, our last three deals have been in. Um, uh, healthcare technology. So we're seeing a lot of change in healthcare technology and a lot of adoption of healthcare technology now, particularly post-COVID. Mm. Um, and then we've got, we've made our first investment into the life sciences space uh, in 2021. And then we've got uh, a number of businesses that also play into the NHS as well as some of the consumer, um, consumer healthcare trends that are happening. How did you end up focusing on healthcare? Is it just a personal interest? I've always believed that our sector can be used and um, drive a lot of good and healthcare to me seemed the most logical place where you could have a real positive impact on society mm. and at the same time really demonstrate that um, commercial success and positive healthcare outcomes can coexist. Mm. That's something we're really passionate about. By being commercially successful, you can reinvest in delivering better care and continually improving the way you think about care outcomes and delivery. Mm. Um, that really gets everybody on the same page because then you're all in it for the same thing, which is we're all trying to improve care outcomes. Um, we just happen to do it in a, in a commercial context. The kind of the, the ethical element of this really does sound like your, your lodestar. It's, it's, the, it's the guiding light that you have that helps you find good commercial opportunities. Yeah, presumably it, also, it also really helps us think about the businesses we want to partner with because mm. um, when you have that as your North Star, mm. everything else kind of falls into place and there is real alignment between us and the founders because we constantly, you know, you've got a sense of what we're really striving for here. And it really helps bring into focus your decision making. You've recently done a deal in the life sciences sector, as you mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit about that? We probably started in 2017 looking more closely at the life sciences space and really trying to break it down into um, where does opportunity set? And there's a few big trends coming back to your point around 10-year truths that we um, recognize, and, and we're not the only ones to recognize it, but th these are the structural changes that were happening in life sciences that are really driving a lot of the opportunity today. Um, the first trend was is that um, drug pipelines were becoming much more complex and much more um, uh, specific. So uh, the years of having really big blockbuster drugs, they're not behind us, but they're less, they're less of an influence. So what you were having is um, pharmaceutical and biotech companies developing drugs that are much more specific indi indications targeted towards much smaller patient populations. Right. So not, not general aspirin and pain relief. No, exactly. Specific. Really specific. So this type of cancer or this type of... Um, yeah. So you had a lot of, you had a more, much more uh, complexity being introduced in the drug pipelines. The second thing was a structural shift in what pharma did and what they outsourced yeah. and where the development in that ecosystem happened. Yeah. So effectively, what you had is um, much more of the development and discovery of drugs moving from pharma into the biotech world and people raising capital on the basis of creating a specific molecular drug that they would then sell into a pharma company or commercialize on their own, which we're increasingly seeing. But in the main, um, hitting milestones and then effectively being able to 
trade on that value and sell them into pharma. And what that meant was that these biotech companies who are quite resource light, so you raise a bit of money and then you're, you do some research, um, started becoming much more dependent on an external ecosystem of providers to help them do very specific things. Yeah. So my drug discovery activity, um, how I think about regulatory affairs, how I think about um, manufacturing batches for clinical trials, all this activity, you know, biotech companies were largely virtual and then they would use third-party service providers. So that created a whole ecosystem of providers around the biotech world that could then serve uh, in a way that wasn't happening before. Secondly, um, the, 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 the pharma companies themselves were then becoming um, also similarly looking to become more, call it asset light. So instead of having all their resource in-house, looking to have more variable resource. Because if you think about it, your drug pipeline over a 10-year period may vary quite uh, significantly um, or a 20-year period. The core role of a pharma company is to identify really novel therapies that you can bring to market and commercialize and successfully do that. Um, but you don't have to be an organization that does everything from top beginning to end. The discovery, the manufacturing, running the clinical trial. So the outsourced provider community and the pharma companies started growing massively as well. And that just created a whole bunch of business models um, that were, you know, probably didn't exist 20, 25 years ago. The third, the third big trend was that- Can actually, I just ask you about that? Yeah. So that's been going on for a couple of decades now. Where yeah. are we in that? So it's, it's, it's fascinating the way you explain it. Like there's these monolithic companies and a part of them is kind of crumbling away yeah. as they outsource it. Yeah. And that's creating a whole entrepreneurial ecosystem. Yeah. Um, how, how far is that? Is that run? Is that net? Is that ecosystem now more or less established, or are there constantly new opportunities There's, coming um, from that? So the way to think about the life sciences ecosystem, the way we think about it, is in three big buckets. So you've got discovery, which is um, trying to identify potential targets to be a, a drug. Yep. You've got the clinical side of it, which is demonstrating that that drug works or it doesn't, and then you've got the commercial side of it, which is selling the drug. So those are the three big buckets of activity, mm. and each of those is on its own journey of maturity with respect to how much is done by third-party provider communities and how much is done by the pharma companies themselves. Are you interested in all three? So I think our current view is, is that, um, so the, the first area that where there was a lot of maturi maturity of outsourcing is largely, in our view, mature now, other than specialists, and we could talk about Veramed, is the clinical side. And you ha now have what are a, a relatively established set of CROs who um, uh, run clinical trials for pharma companies. Now, the interesting dynamic there is when I talked about this biotech dynamic, some of these biotechs are now um, starting to try and run clinical trials themselves and go further up the value chain. Mm. So, And what's happened is you've got this huge CRO community, but they're largely um, facing into big, big pharma. So actually, it's, it's quite a complex matrix because you've got um, pharma companies, mid, so big pharma, let's call it, mid-sized pharma and biotech. Mm. And then you've got a service provider community that is kind of catering to each of those segments. Right. So the large CROs today are largely focused on the big pharma business. They match up against that. But then there's a whole ecosystem of CROs on the clinical side that are playing into the smaller customer segments as they start to do more of that activity. So in a sense, they, they're specialists, but they're coming less and less specialists because obviously they're trying to expand their position as well. Exactly. And, um, and, but, but that whole that whole ecosystem relative to the other parts is, is pretty mature now. Right, yeah. Uh, so we think it's harder to play into other than right. very specialty disciplines yeah. where, for example, biometrics, which Veramed does, which is all the data analysis around clinical trials, um, 
uh, where it's a very special discipline that is increasingly being procured independently by the pharma companies rather than using the CRO for them. When I hear biometrics, I think of just like CCTV scanning. Yeah. So, so biometrics in a pharma sense is um, three disciplines, data management, statistics, and programming. And uh, in very simple terms, what it involves is all the data analysis that occurs around a clinical trial. So you can imagine when you're conducting a clinical trial, you're giving patients uh, drugs, you monitor the effects on them, you're constantly getting data back, and how you then synthesize that to demonstrate that this drug is causing this impact on a patient all the statistical analysis around that is biometrics more generally. Right. Um, and so um, that, you know, th- three years ago, we spotted that this was increasingly being done independently of the full service CRO world. And therefore we invested, you know, we were lucky enough to invest in Vor- uh, Veramed. And that was a um, that was us, you know, really bringing to bear our thematic investing. We spotted that that was a theme. Mm. We met every business in the UK that did that. And what was very different about Veramed was that it really fat fit with our culture and our ethos. Um, the business was really focused on being the employer of choice mm. and really delivering high quality work. How did that. you find the business? Uh, so that was, we have a direct origination team that reach out to companies on our own volition. And while a lot of the market today in terms of private equity transactions will be intermediated by an advisor in the middle, mm. um, that relationship prior to that event happening means that you have a, you know, you often have a yeah, better yeah. chance of completing that transaction. Proprietary deal, holy grail. Yeah. And that was one of those. Well, yeah, so they put an advisor in and other people yeah, have to look at it, eventually but we already had a relationship. Of course, eventually they're going to get advised, but yeah. you're, you're in the uh, in early, as it were. Exactly, and there's a, there's an understanding there, there's a relationship that, that you can leverage. Yeah, um, yeah, and how's and, it going? Yeah, great. It's a fantastic business. Um, it's a really exciting end market. Um, and what's really uh, reassuring to see is that business has been able to scale its headcount without, without, the impact of quality. So often when large businesses grow, um, it's harder to maintain. And particularly in healthcare, it's really important that you have really good clinical governance and quality all the way through the organization. Um, and part of the reason we really we thought Vermont is really attractive is because they're focused on quality, and that's proven out as we've um, invested. And we've just made our first acquisition in the US. Uh, and you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the, the largest farmer market exists in the U.S., and a lot of our customers will want us to do U.S. work. So we now have an on-the-ground presence there, which we is a business we help the company identify, help them transact, um, and now we can we can go from there. What about digital? Because particularly we're here in the U.K. with the NHS, it's a huge institution, presumably the only way to make that more efficient is is digitization. There can't be any real downsides to digitization, can there? And that's just all good. I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits to technology, but we have to be very cognizant of how we deploy it. And um, this is where this sort of care ethos and outcome ethos really comes to the fore. Because actually, um, first of all, when you um, introduce lots of technology solutions into an organization, um, that's a lot of change management. Mm that needs to happen. And actually, we see our job when we invest in healthcare technology businesses is really helping educate providers who, in a lot of instances, um, may be adopting a technology solution for the first time. Mm. Or more importantly, they've got you know staff, nurses, clinicians who are stressed enough as it is with their day job. Yeah. And then having to learn how to use a new tool, even though there's massive benefit to it, but that initial learning curve and... Um, changing the ways of working and the behavioral patterns, um, that's a, a, a massive change management program, a massive cultural program. So mm. implementing technology, it, it can't be viewed as, let's just go sign up to a new tool. 
it's got to be really fundamental to uh, how the organization thinks about changing the way it operates and works. Yeah, because people have got to use it. People have got to use it, and we need to recognize that actually mm. these people have very busy day jobs, and they're very stressed with what they do. It, there's a lot of um, there's a huge amount of pressure on the system generally, um, and so introducing technology can be quite hard. Mm. And in that respect, you have to be patient about it as well. Um, but it's our job to really educate and and help people understand the benefits technology can deliver. Mm. The other thing that um, we really think about a lot is um, what I guess you could call digital exclusion and inclusion, which is um, ensuring that technology is accessible for all. And that's both in terms of how it's designed, but also the ability for people to access technology. Because you can imagine a scenario where... Um, uh, You've got a digital pathway for care, and by that I mean, um, you know, the triage is digital on your phone. You upload a picture, uh, you answer a bunch of questions, um, and then you're uh, you're sent into a referral pathway, and then ultimately you maybe end up with a face-to-face -face appointment or not, or you're asked to input a lot of data about yourself, um, or you have to do it um, completely remotely, and you know somebody might be living no somewhere where there's a bad internet connection, for example. So there's all these um, aspects to getting people to actually use technology and engage with it and making sure it doesn't exclude elements of society and, and mm. groups of society who are either less digitally savvy or have less access. Well, there's a massive generational component to this as well, where, you know, as, it's not just that the, this, the older generation didn't grow up with technology. It's also that technology does become harder as your digits become you know, less malleable and your eyesight starts to go. It all becomes harder. I know. Exactly. Just, and so therefore, we, we exactly. And so when designing solutions that have technology in them, this kind of needs to come to the fore in terms of hmm. um, be at the core of how people think about it, ensuring access and usability and education um, of technology so you can take people on that journey and make it easy for them. Hmm. Um, it's a really big, uh, it's something that, you know, we talk about a lot at Nourish and ensuring that actually our technology becomes usable and accessible for people. Mm. And I'd imagine as you come across like a really cool uh, digital company uh, focused at healthcare, you can then take that. Because if I'm a software engineer and I know that I've got a, is it, healthcare is a great application, mm -hmm. that might not be the first thing I think of because I'm a tech guy. I love that stuff, you know? Exactly. Whereas you can bring that perspective and say, hang on, guys. Everybody sits in their own echo chamber, right? So right. it's very easy to not have perspective of somebody, how another user might think of it. And is there is there any um, symbiosis between your uh, digital investments and you, your view of services? What we're increasingly seeing is health, in healthcare in particular is uh, that combination of technology and service. Um, and particularly on the sort of acute side, where um, if, you imagine, if you imagine what we're trying to do is have the, you know, for somebody who's got a specific problem, have the most efficient pathway through the healthcare system that might involve a digital solution at the beginning that helps you work out whether you actually need to see somebody or not and it might involve end up with you seeing a clinician mm. and actually if you want to um, really have a solution that makes that whole process both from a customer experience a clinical outcome and a system efficiency perspective those all need to be joined up in some way um, and so uh, I think you'll you'll start to see more of an integration of technology and service as time goes on um, because it becomes imperative for the system to deliver the change it needs. So maybe we could try and round up with kind of a more, because this all sounds like great stuff and it's a very broad sector and you've done a great job of kind of passing it for us. Um, do you have a view on um, the role, the importance of private equity and growth capital in healthcare? Because, you know, you look. I look at some sectors and, you know, manufacturing or whatever, and I think if private equity wasn't there, 
that, that wouldn't be positive. Mm. It might not be the end of the world. So what, what role in the kind of the round, in the macro, um, is, is private equity playing for the positive in the healthcare sector, would you say? Let's start with some of the challenges that the system's got and some, mm. of, them, some of which are structural. So if you look in the UK, the capital investment that's gone into healthcare is typically, you know, so for example, um, the UK has got 16, I think it's around 16 MRI and CT scanners per uh, million people in the population. Most European countries have 33. Wow. Or th in, the, in the 30s, the US has 85. Amazing. So we got half of so, our European neighbors. Ha yeah, half of our European neighbors. And part of that system, uh, so, you know, Germany's got an older population. There's, there's certain characteristics, but in the main, mm. um, we've had a significant amount of capital under investment. So, in, into the UK. And so therefore our, our estate and our system has been started with that, in, that, that development that it's needed. And secondly, if you think about um, what's going to change the system and what's going to really drive its innovation, people coming from outside the sector into the sector, coming up with new solutions and novel ways of changing things. And I think private equity is a great way to facilitate and bring that to bear to the sector to really enable innovation in a space. Great. Well, Sanjay, thanks so much for coming on the show and explaining that very interesting cool. sector. Good Great. With it. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Fun Shack podcast, which has had more than 100,000 listens, but only about five reviews. And I think I left one of them. I know it's a bit fiddly, but it's easier from your phone and it's very easy to leave a rating. On Apple, for example, make sure you're subscribed, then go to your library, click on Fun Shack, scroll almost to the bottom beneath the episodes, and you'll see ratings and reviews. Give us a five, leave a comment. It's all the payment I ask. Thank you kindly.